And again, welcome to Freedom. It's good to see you here today, and to those of you who are joining us online, welcome to you. We are so grateful that you're able to tune in that way. And uh, as expected, on uh, Valentine's Day, we've got a, a little bit of a smaller crowd in the room, but hopefully that means we've got more folks who are tuned in online and have got big, big plans for uh, pursuing love with uh, a special one today. It's a rare thing to celebrate Valentine's Day on a Sunday, but I hope you've got uh, big plans for this day. I hope your plans worked out better than mine did. I thought I had had well laid plans. I ordered flowers in advance, going to get them delivered a couple of days early, and all of that just went down the drain. Didn't show up on Friday. Got the email yesterday. You're going to need to substitute this in order to get it by Valentine's Day. Sent that in. Then they email again and say, well, we'll try and get you something by Wednesday or some such. So anyway, happy Valentine's Day, honey. (laughs) The best laid plans of mice and men. We're glad you're here today as we celebrate Valentine's Day. And above everything, as we celebrate Christ in this place, uh, indeed, the love that we celebrate way more than any romantic love is we celebrate the great love that God has for us. Today we're wrapping up a series that we've been in for uh, really since about uh, the beginning of the year. It's been about living with margin, and we're going to wrap this thing up in an appropriate way, uh, talking about what really matters most in life. And then next Sunday we're going to begin a new series that's going to take us all the way to Holy Week. I hope you'll be able to be a part of that series. I'm excited about it. It's really uh, significant stuff as we're talking about in the upcoming series choices that define your life, and I hope you'll be a part of that from the very uh, outset beginning next Sunday. But today, we're going to focus in on choosing what matters most. Now, this whole thing about learning to live with margin, it hasn't been a time management strategy. That's not what this has been about. It has been about trying to take a step back and take a look at our lives and the things that are really draining our time and energy and, and resources the most so that we can get a handle on that, so that we can build in some margins, some room that lets us focus on and really enjoy and give ourselves to the things that do matter the most. So this has really been kind of a management tool. So if you want to pull out your outlines and follow along, we're going to start focusing in today on choosing the thing that matters most. So what really does matter most? I, I want to begin by... Uh, asking you a question, and that is, if you could have Jesus face-to-face for five minutes, and you got to ask him just one question, you could ask him anything that you want to, what would you ask him? What would your question be? I spent some time thinking about that this week, and really kind of froze up at the thought, because I'm like, I, I know that when I was, I'm finished with that, if I just had one question, I'd come away going, oh man, that wasn't what I should have asked. I should have asked something differently. If you could ask Jesus one question, would it be some deep, searching, theological question, or would it be a question about some painful experience in life, and why he let that happen, or when, why some prayer went unanswered? What would your question be? Well, one of the teachers in the law one day had an audience with Jesus, and he had an opportunity to ask one of those, you know, if you could just ask one question. And he really hit it out of the park with his question. He, he essentially asked the question, of everything we've ever been taught, everything we've ever been exposed to, what is it that really does matter the most? What is it that trumps everything else in our faith? And Jesus' response to that sums up 
everything that's recorded in the Bible. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Jesus' response to that question is found in Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, where Jesus responded with essentially a three-part answer to the question of what is it that matters most. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Would you say that's pretty much all of you? We all agree. That is the number one thing, loving God with every fiber of your being. And he said the second commandment is like this, and it's a two-part commandment, that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he added the exclamation point to this when he said, there are no commands more important than these. What Jesus is saying is if you want to know what Christianity is about from A to Z, it is this. It's about love. It's about loving God, loving the people around you, and loving yourself well. And if you don't do all three of those, no matter what else you do well in life, you've missed the point. If you miss any one of those, your life is jacked up. Have you ever been around somebody who, who could get maybe one or two of those right, but they didn't do all three and realize just how out of balance they are? For instance, you find the person who they are a deeply spiritual person. You can tell by being around them that they love God and they try to love people, but ultimately they don't love themselves. They are just eaten up with guilt or shame or self-hatred for some reason. And you can just tell it makes them so hollow as a person and it makes it so difficult to love other people. Well, because, by the way, if you don't love yourself, you will be lousy at loving the people who are around you. Jesus said you have to do all three of these and you have to hold them in balance. Loving God, loving people, and loving yourself. This is what life is all about. And he underscores it at the end. Nothing is more important than these. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, he knows that he's only got hours before he goes to the cross. So every word is just weightier than ever because he knows that these are some of the last conversations that he's going to have with his disciples here on earth. And he said to them in John 13, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Here it is. Wait for it. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now, if you've been in church, you almost yawn while you hear that. It's like, uh, yeah, lo love each other. As if that's a new command. Oh, let me tell you, it was a new command 2,000 years ago, and it should hit us like a two-by-four upside the head as to what a striking thing it is for the Christian community to hear Jesus say, you want to know how the world is going to recognize you as a follower of me? It's going to be because you love so thoroughly. You love so universally. Think about that in the world in which we live today, particularly as we experience Western Christianity. Think about how the world perceives Christianity today in the West. We're defined by what we hate. You ever just stop and think about it? Think of the things that we are known for hating. Those Christians, they hate drinking. They hate dancing. They, they hate gays, they hate lesbians, they hate transgenders, they hate Democrats, they, they hate kudzu. You know, those Christians, they hate everything. Christians really are known for what we stand against. And Jesus said, that is not how people will recognize you as a follower of mine. The defining mark of a follower of Jesus is they are the most loving people on the planet. 
They love God, absolutely. But because of their relationship with God, they love people universally. They love people who love them. They love people who are like them. They love other Christians. And they love people who don't like them. They love people who don't think like them. They love people who have completely different values from them. They love people who come from other political parties. They love people who come from other religious groups. They love people who are violently opposed to Christianity. They just love, love, love people of all kinds. And Jesus said, you find people like that and you will know that they belong to me because the only people who can love like that are people who know me. Wouldn't you agree that that kind of love defies human nature? I mean, who do you know just in the world at large outside the church has that kind of love? I can't think of anyone. It's an extraordinary thing. Jesus said, this is the mark of true Christianity. By this, people will look at you and say, has to be a Christian. It's a radical call. It's like a new commandment for the 21st century. Western church, American church, learn to love like this. So in choosing what matters most, we recognize the call of Jesus is to live a life of love. Tragically, people will choose other goals. They'll choose other things to focus their lives on. And that's the reason that they burn out. Nobody ever sets out to burn out, by the way, do they? I mean, who do you know that when they were in their 20s and you said, what do you plan to do with your life? They said, well, what I really am hoping to do is to spend the next 20 or 25 years working 70, 80, 90 hours a week and just burn my body out, burn my mind out, destroy my marriage and alienate myself from my kids that I haven't even had yet at this point. But I'm going to have kids and then I'm going to alienate myself from them, have a ruined marriage and just be a physical burnout and and a career washout. Never known anybody who set out to do that, but I've known plenty of people who've lived that out very well, haven't you? It, it just happens because you can pursue career for all your worth. You can make a load of money. You can have all the toys and stuff. You can be a success, but you will never find contentment down that road if you have not built your life on love and relationships because this you can know for sure of everybody you've ever encountered that all are wired for love relationships and it is the only thing that we'll find satisfaction in and please don't misunderstand because the fact that this is valentine's day don't get confused on what the message is about i'm not talking about romance whether you have a sweetheart or a spouse is irrelevant for what i'm talking about today we're talking about all of the love relationships that we have. And by the way, we, we love to go overboard with the idea of romantic love in, in our culture, don't we? As if it should ju- just always be this feeling all the time. There are no romantic relationships that feel like that all the time. We're talking about love that is steady, whether it's with your romantic other or anyone else in your life. That's where real fulfillment is found. We must choose that as the goal. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Paul said this, Everything you do must be done in love. So the point is that we put relationships ahead of tasks and activities, ahead of the to-do list. It's the most important part of our to-do list. And as we've said throughout the series, when you don't have margin in your life, 
when the, the gap between what you're capable of doing, what you have the capacity for, and what you have to do every day and every week begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller, the first thing you're going to be skimming off is the relationships that matter the most. You won't be giving as much time to your relationship with God, with your spouse, with your kids, with the significant people in your life, your small group, and others. So we've got to actively work against this by making love our highest priority. But what does that look like? This is what we want to get practical on today. If, if living a life of love is what Christianity is all about, and it is, then what does that love look like? Well, love gets defined a lot of different ways in our culture. Do you notice that? I mean, we throw that word around a lot. So we better let God define what love is. That's the second point in your outline, to let God define this thing for us. We don't want to let the world define love for us because that is so screwed up. I mean, the, the world is in love with the idea of love. It's in the movies all the time. It's in the books that we read. And, and it's, man, you can't turn on the radio without hearing about love, love, love. We love to write songs about love, don't we? It, it's, if you're going to be a success, that's what you've got to sing about is love. But it is, it's kind of weird to listen to our love songs. If you had an understanding of love based on the popular songs of the culture, you'd have a weird understanding of love, wouldn't you? Because we have love songs and breakup songs and I hate you because we broke up love songs. I mean, we've just got all kinds of weird songs about love. Since it is Valentine's Day, I thought I'd have a little bit of fun with the, the music, the songs of love today. So I'm going to just throw out a few of the songs about love and just let you see if you can answer back. I picked ones that you should know. You tell me the artist that made it famous, and for you who are just the real music scholars, please don't make me look any more stupid than I already do by saying, well, that was actually written by, just name the artist that made it famous, okay? All right. The first song, All You Need Is Love. The Beatles, thank you. Love Me Tender. Elvis Presley, thank you. That's the power of love. Huey Lewis, thank you, Jim. In the name of love, I thought somebody said it. You too. You too was who, who I thought was the one most famous for doing that one. The final one. What's love got to do with it? Tina Turner. Well, well, on that thought, what's love got to do with it? God would say it's got everything to do with it. That it's what it's all about. But what does this love that God has called us to? look like well if you watch the news if you just pay attention to the world around us at some point it occurs to us as humans we're not very good at this this kind of love that god calls us to are we because the kind of love that the new testament calls us to this agape love it's not a feeling it's not i mean the, the word agape is not a feeling verb to, to agape somebody, it, it's an action verb, and it is an action that is defined as the commitment to meet the needs of another. It is a self-sacrificing, giving, action kind of love. And when you just look at how humans treat each other, you realize, whew, that doesn't sound like us much at all. We tend to be very self-serving and, and attacking towards others. So if we're not really good at it by nature, 
where does it come from and how do we get better at it? Well, the beginning points, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, which says this, Love comes from God, for God is love. I want you to think about that for just a moment. If you grew up in, in Sunday school, grew up in church, you, you learned this one of the first Bible verses you ever learned, that God is love. But have you ever just paused to reflect on that thought? It's not just that God is loving. God is love. If you could strip God down to his core, what do you expect to find? Do you expect to find an angry judge, a railing father? What you would find is the foundation of who God is, is that he is love. And because of that, because we're made in his image, he gives us a capacity to love the way that, that he loves. And we throw the word love around really loosely and really freely. We say we love people and pizza, ponies and puppies. We love old cars and candy bars. We, we love all kinds of things. But that's not that kind of feeling has little to do with what God says that he is when he tells us that he is love. The best description that we find in Scripture of this kind of love is that classic passage. If you've been to a wedding, you've heard it. It's, it's the, from the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And it defines the kind of love that God calls us to when it says love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, love is not proud, love does not dishonor others, love is not self-seeking, love is not easily angered, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. Love rejoices in the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, that's a beautiful classic passage, beautiful description of love. But remember, God is love. It's the core of who he is. So I want you to rewind and look at this passage, but I want us to read it substituting the fact that God is love and God is these things. So consider this passage again in that light. God is patient. God is kind. God doesn't envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. Somebody say amen. Whew. God does not delight in evil. God rejoices in the truth. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God always perseveres. God never fails. Isn't that a beautiful picture of your father? Some of us live afraid of, our parent, uh, of God because of what our parents were like. And yet, we get this picture of a God who, when we screw up, He's still being patient with us. When we fail, He's not keeping a record of wrongs because we are His children. That is God's heart toward you. Why does that matter? Why, why is that a big deal when we're talking about how we should love one another? Here's why it's a big deal. Because it is impossible for you to love well until you have been loved by God. 
And if you've got this messed up image in your mind of how God sees you or how God feels toward you or how God relates to you, then it'll be impossible for you to love well. But if you can get secure in God's love for you, if you can believe what we just read, that this is truly God's heart for you, I'm telling you, you're going to have a capacity now to love others when that really begins to to sink in, that God loves me this much. John says in 1 John 4, 16, So we know the love that God has for us, and we trust that love. So when God can define love for us by how he loves us, we're set up to love others well. That brings us to the third point we're going to make today, and that is that we must choose to let love define our priorities. Have you noticed that in life it's human nature that chores and our job become the priority whether we mean for them to or not? We're just so task-driven as people. Either the things that we've got to do at work occupy our minds all the time. How are we going to get all the things done this week that we need to get done? And all the chores we need to do at home. And that just becomes the highest priorities. But they never fulfill us. We talked about this a week or two ago, how the whole story of God's creation of Adam and how he delayed creating Eve, God just made a man first and gave him a perfect setting and and gave him work to do and let him experience what life would be to have work and perfection. I mean, we we love to, to kid and say, my life would be perfect if it wasn't for all the people around me. I mean, don't you feel that way at times? Like, my life would be so easy if it just wasn't for people. It's a, it's a good joke, but it's a terrible reality. Adam is the picture of that. He didn't have anybody to ruin his day. He had dominion over everything. If he hung a picture in the wrong place, he did not have a woman to tell him that he hung it in the wrong place. If he left his clothes on the floor, he didn't have anybody to tell him that he needed to pick them up. I mean, he had no one to correct him, no one to make him mad. And what he discovered was it was not good to be alone. That he couldn't be fulfilled until he had someone else in his life. Well, if loving relationships are what life's all about, and they're our primary source of meaning, how should they, in practical ways, define our priorities? What would that look like? There are two tools that you have in very practical ways for you to make love the priority of your life. You've got multiple tools, but, but two that are worth mentioning, and one of these two that I'm going to really talk about today. One is your budget, your checkbook, and the other one is your calendar. If you just want to get down to business in terms of saying, how am I going to make love the priority of my life, break out your calendar, break out your wallet. Remember, love isn't a feeling. Love is an action. Love is a commitment to meet the needs of another. Be prepared to bring your wallet to do that. But even more so, be prepared to adjust your calendar. Love ultimately is about learning new rhythms in life, rhythms of grace. You remember in uh, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, that's been our theme passage for this series, where Jesus said, come to me and learn from me, learn these rhythms of grace from me. That, that word rhythm is such a great word for what we're talking about. Rhythm simply means a strong, regular, repeated pattern of movement or sound. 
That actually sounds doable to most people. Jackie looks at me and says, not so much with me. I am a white boy through and through. I have no rhythm. I mean, just I am eaten up with no rhythm. But most people are good at rhythm. And rhythm really is what love is about. It is about setting patterns of things that you just do again and again and again. Things that become second nature to you. Can I just give you some examples of some of the rhythms of grace that express love? They aren't complicated. Some of the ones that come to mind for me, like here's a recent rhythm of grace that I've discovered. And we're always having to adjust to, to like the, the next season of life, a rhythm of grace. Just one of the rhythms that of late has worked for us. We're in, in a cold season of the year. And so we have to adjust our rhythm. We like to get up and walk in the mornings just to start the day with exercise by walking for an hour. It's cold in the morning. It takes the fun out of walking in the morning. I do not like walking on a morning like this, so we don't. A simple adjustment in our rhythm has been if I skip my lunch, Jackie gets off earlier than I do, and we can go for an hour's walk in the afternoon and have an hour to walk and talk and not have the interruption of telephones or computer or anything else while we walk in the afternoon. That's not complicated. That's not anything that even costs any money. But it is just a rhythm of love that's good for our relationship. I'll tell you another little helpful rhythm that we found. One of the easiest default things that any of us can do in a relationship that's just the way to not be bored to tears is to either sit down in front of the computer or sit down in front of the television and binge on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Anybody in the room ever do that besides us? Yes, that's an easy thing to do. One of the rhythms that we found is on most evenings before we dare to even turn on the TV is, first of all, we devote the evening meal to each other, and usually even the time when the meal is being prepared to just being able to be in the kitchen and talk while that's going on. But for us, the thing that works Part of the rhythm for us is to usually just play a game before we ever sit down and turn on the TV because you realize how disengaged you get when the TV's on. So part of our rhythm is we'll sit down and play cards together. or We, we love board games and Quirkle and you know those kinds of things. So we'll do that for an hour, hour and a half before we do something else because it has us interacting with each other. Again, that may not sound exciting to you, but it's a way to pursue a deeper relationship with each other. Here's some other rhythms that come to mind. Having a regular rhythm to the phone calls that you're going to make to the people that matter to you. For instance, your family that doesn't live with you anymore. Parents, siblings, grown children, having a regular rhythm to how often are you going to talk. Now, by the way, we can get out of rhythm or, or have maybe... Uh, too fast of a beat to some things that we'll do in life. I discover that when I do premarital counseling. You know how I make parents of a bride or groom mad in counseling? It's when I'm in counseling and I discover that there's a level of, of connection, that the rhythm of phone calls is so frequent that they have to talk every single day with mama, sometimes two and three times a day, every day. And in premarital counseling, I'll go ahead and tell you, I counsel everyone... That needs to stop on the day that you get married. 
That's too busy of a rhythm, brother. I have had some mamas come back wanting to rip my head off. What do you mean telling my child that they are not going to continue to call me every day? I'm, I'm serious. This is not a joke. Folks get mad about that. We need to find healthy rhythms. And if we overdo some particular relationship, that's not going to leave us with the margin that we need for other relationships. So we find healthy rhythms where you've got to find what's right for you. Calling mama twice a day is probably in a normal season of life, probably not a good rhythm. But calling mom and dad once a month is probably not a healthy rhythm either. So finding a healthy rhythm for phone calls. Can I tell you a rhythm that we found in our family over the last year is, uh, and, and actually COVID-19 brought it on. A lot of us have been sort of frustrated by the things that we had to do through Zoom, but we discovered for our family that Zoom became a good way to get my parents, my siblings, and spouses all together once a week. So 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoons on a weekly basis, there's a 40-minute Zoom session for our family. We haven't been able to get together for Thanksgiving and Christmas and birthdays and any of those kinds of things that are a normal part of the rhythm for us in a calendar year. So we block off 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoons, and for 40 minutes... We catch up. may not be the same as being in the room, but it is a rhythm that helps us to pursue close, loving relationships. A rhythm of date nights are a good thing for the married people in the room, for the people who have a boyfriend or girlfriend or a fiancé. I know the pandemic has thrown everybody out of whack, or most of us anyway, but we're soon going to be at a place we can return to a normal schedule, returning to things like having a date night every week. Guys, here's a good rhythm to add to the mix if it's not already a part of it. Having a rhythm of making sure that you don't let more than a month or two go by that you do a card or you send flowers or something like that that's a way of expressing love to your spouse. Scheduling time with friends on a regular basis. Having that be on your calendar. Are you, in the culture that we live in now, it doesn't seem like we... We do this just instinctively well. So are you disciplined enough to make sure that you are pursuing time with other friends? Has anybody else noticed what a problem this has been? And I don't just mean during the pandemic. I mean like at least during the past decade or two that people do not seem to to have either the, the discipline or the just the heart to actually pursue meaningful relationships with adult friends on any kind of regular basis, I mean, just healthy relationships outside of work. People seem to be lousy at this today. Build that in as a regular rhythm that, hey, at least a couple of times a month, if not every week, let's make sure that we're engaging with somebody else or with another couple that we're spending time and we're calendaring that. Blocking off time for taking trips. Because of what that does for you, it's a way of loving yourself. If you're married... Absolutely blocking off that time to get away. I encourage people when I do counseling with them and I live it out. Don't go more than a quarter of the year that you don't go away, even if it's just for a night or two, to just go escape the normal routine of life to pursue the relationship that matters the most to you. You can find ways to do that, that it's not expensive to do it. So it's a big part of making love a priority. So I want to just close by, by mentioning to you three practical ways to love well. If you 
If love should be the goal of your life, three specific ways for us to pursue that. The first one, just getting down to a practical level, is to get filled up before you pour out. We've talked a lot about this during the series. Everybody here has got love tanks. We've got a capacity for carrying love to give away, but everybody has got leaky tanks. Have you noticed that about your love tanks? And, and the holes in the bottom of our tanks are sufficient to make sure that at least every 24 hours they've got to be refilled. Have you noticed that about yourself? Most of us can't hold out for a full 24 hours. And if, if you need to test that, just come in after a hard day at work and let your spouse be snarky, sharp, sarcastic with you. Let the kids or grandkids be out of control. Let something begin to really bump hard up against you by about 7 or 8 o'clock at night and see how much you've got left in the tank for that. It's amazing how quick the, the tank runs dry. So you've got to make sure that you get it filled up every day. Now, there are people who refill our tanks. Do you have some of those people in your life that being around them, you always come away feeling like, man, I've just got more in reserve now because I was with them. I just feel better. I'm, I'm happier. I've got something to give away. There are people who can do that, but there's one who can do that above everyone else, and that is the Lord Jesus himself, and you need him refilling your tank every single day. Paul said in Ephesians 3.18, And may you, know the, may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. The point that's being made here is, the starting point of loving other people well is being loved well. So the starting point of every day really needs to be that we just get to spend a little bit of time in the presence of God. Letting Him know that we love Him, but really more importantly, just enjoying His love. I'm telling you, it is a, a transformational thing when you get to the place that you realize that in your quiet time, it is not first and foremost about what you learn, although it's nice to learn new things, but that that's not the most important thing that's going to happen today in quiet time, that it's not about what you said in prayer, that the most significant thing that's going to happen in your quiet time is that you just were in the presence of God and you experienced the love of God and you came away convinced of the height and width and depth of God's love for you. Because when that happens... While that's taking place, while you're just enjoying being in the presence of God, being loved by God, you can just picture as if your, your body were the fuel gauge and the needle is just climbing, 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 climbing as God is just loving you and convincing you and filling your heart up until the point that it is just over the top of your head. And at that point, I want to tell you, nobody in your path that day is safe. Because you're just going to get loved. It's just going to spill out of you because you have just been filled with the love of God. And wherever you go, whether it's people who like you or who are complimenting you or people who are ignoring you and being short with you, they're just going to get splashed with love because you, your heart has been filled with love from God. But I want to warn you, the opposite of that is true as well. If you slept a little late, you had too much going on, you just didn't have time to be with God, do not expect to splash much on anybody else through the course of the day that feels like love. You've got to get filled up before you're going to spill over onto anyone else. 
1 John 4, 19, says we love because he first loved us. He didn't wait for us to make the first move. He pursued us. Yet so many of us go around feeling unloved. Isn't that tragic? Feeling unloved by people, feeling unloved by God. Do do you ever feel that way? It's safe to do this. Do you ever feel unloved? Do you ever feel cut off even from the love of God? Like, I'm not even sure whether God... I mean, I know God loves the whole wide world, but I don't... I just don't feel loved by God today. Why do we feel that way? I'm convinced more than anything else. It's because some, some person or some people who are really important in our lives have not loved us well. And that's happened to a lot of us. If you had a mom or a dad or some significant caregiver or a spouse, they didn't love you well. They loved you with a conditional love. They loved you with a flimsy kind of love. They loved you with the kind of love that used pain and guilt and shame a whole lot. If that's what you were given, the natural thing that we will do is without meaning to, we will transfer that onto God. We, We know we're made in the image of God, so we just assume that the people who have been most significant in our lives somehow must reflect what God is like, and we imagine God to be like them. And that will just poison the way that we feel about God and how God must look at us and how God must relate to us. And the thing that I want to say to you is if if that's been your experience, if that's colored, clouded your view of God and how He feels about you, first of all, I'm terribly sorry. It's not fair, it's not right that you've lived with the things that have hurt you in those ways. But the thing that you need to know is you just got to let people be people and let God be God. And you need to draw a line between the two in your heart and mind. Just understand, people are broken. People are damaged. People have been hurt. And hurt people will hurt people. But God is not like that. God is all the things that we read a while ago. And the fact that people in your life may have hurt you deeply does not change how good God is. He does love you. And he wants every day to communicate that to you. Maybe one of the most practical things that you could do to try and get that from here down to here is to take one or two scripture verses. You don't have to go memorize half the Bible. Take one or two passages of scripture. You could start by picking out a couple of passages from this sermon outline and just write those out on an index card. You may need to do it on several index cards. And just plaster it on different places, maybe in the dash of your car, maybe on the mirror of your your bathroom or in the kitchen, places that you're going to see that. And just be reminded of of things like what Paul says at the end of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. And he names off all of the things that could try to, that he says cannot do it. And just commit to memory and be reminded again and again of the depth of God's love for you because you can't give it out until you've been filled up with it daily. The second thing, if we're just going to get practical about loving well, focus on faces over screens and voices over texts. Now we're talking about concrete expressions of love. And no, I could not find a verse that spoke about screens or or iPhones or Netflix or technology. I could not find that verse but I sure did find the principle. 
You find the principle a lot in Scripture in passages like Romans 12, 9, and 10, which says this. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each other. That New Testament word for honor, you know what it means literally? It means to consider weighty. As in, in, in an ancient context where you know, gold was the most valuable thing. And it was heavy. It was weighty. So something of great value was really weighty. So what he's saying is, don't just say that you love other people. Don't just pretend like you love other people. Treat them as the most weighty and precious thing in your life, certainly in the moment that you're with them. Do you ever just think about how terribly we dishonor others by the, the way that we refuse to give our attention to them? Now, what I'm saying right here, there are going to be a bunch of us who are going to want to turn this off, who are going to want to just put a big parenthesis around this and cut this out of the sermon and pretend like you never heard this. And if you don't hear anything else I'll talk about today, please hear the next two minutes. This has become epidemic in our culture today. We are so driven by technology. We love our smartphones. We love our tablets. We love our Netflix. We love technology. We love all of our apps. And isn't it wonderful that we have access to all of these things? And I'm telling you this. You better learn to use technology and love people. Or technology will wind up using you. And right now we live at a place where we're used by the technology around us. When you are in the same room with another living, breathing human being, especially somebody who actually matters in your life, somebody that you would care if they dropped dead today, and they're trying to talk to you, and you hear, ding. Well, what does that mean? I just got an email. I just got a text. I just got an Instagram or thank you, ma'am. Or, what, you know, we just got a something electronic. What do you do in that moment? What do you do in that moment? Far, far too many of us. That phone rings, that phone dings, and what do we do? We've immediately got to look at it, right? Somebody else might need my attention. Really, more than the living, breathing person who's trying to talk to you right now, do you know what that says? Do you know what that action says? If I'm having a conversation with Butch and my phone dings in the middle of Butch talking and I whip it out to look at it, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying, Butch, you're a lightweight you're not weighty enough. This, this little piece of technology weighs more than you do. It's, it's weightier in my mind. I'm more concerned about who knows what than I am about you. And I know right now half of us are rationalizing reasons why it's okay to always check our phone. Because ultimately the message is, but I'm really important. People might need to reach me because I am important. They might need me. I want to tell you somebody does need you. And it's usually the person who's in the room with you right now. Value them. Show them that they have weight. This is one of those running dialogues that Jackie and I will have. Because she, she said it the other day. She's like, I don't understand how you let your phone ding or ring and not look at it. And I, I don't do it perfectly. I, I don't. I'm the first to admit that. But I do my best to make sure if we're having a conversation, if we're having a meal, if we're, if we're out having our time like to walk and talk, we're having a conversation. So if my phone's dinging, I'll check it when we're done. 
I have usually discovered that the world is still in existence. The democracy has not burned down when it takes me an hour to check my phone. Would you believe that? I thought I was so important that the world needed me on a moment's notice. But it usually can survive for an hour without me giving attention to it. What a disappointment to me. You know what I'm talking about? I know this is the painful part of the sermon. There are a few things that we can do that will communicate more clearly you have real weight in my life than to just say, I'm going to pursue the real person encounter. So before we binge on Netflix for three hours on the couch, let's spend 30 minutes or an hour doing something where we talk, where we interact live. We're about to come out of the pandemic at a level that we're going to be able to go back to situations where we can sit down over the table, we can have people in our homes, we can meet in restaurants, we can drop the masks. We need to make sure that we don't stick to pandemic measures when we're post-pandemic here in a few months. We don't need to settle for phone calls and texts when we would have been far better off to say, hey, why don't you come over to the house? Why don't we talk about that over dinner tonight? Why don't we meet for coffee? Choose face-to-face encounters because something important gets transferred in face-to-face encounters that is lost with a text. And those moments when we say, hey, John, can we get together? How about we meet at, at Shanghai for lunch this week? You know what that says? That says you have weight in my life. You matter. I want to take an hour to sit down with you. I hope maybe we can make, stretch that to an hour and a half because, man, when I'm with you, there's something good happening in my heart. I want to tell you that has value. Focus on faces over screens, voices over texts. And the final thing goes right with that. Practice presence over productivity. I want you to all take a pen and write something down right now. I want you to write down the number. 28,855. Got it? 28,855. You know what that number is? It's a number you didn't come in here thinking about today. The average life expectancy for all Americans today, men and women rolled together, 79 years. That means if you lived exactly what's expected that you'd be given 28,855 days in your life. That means that if you turn 25 today, you got 19,724 days left if you live what's expected. I'm 52 years old, or at least I was last April 10th. If you turn 52 today, that would mean on average you've got 9,862 days left. Well, my next birthday's soon on the horizon so that means i've got a little over nine and a half thousand days left if i'm just the average american i was born with about again on average twenty nine thousand days ahead of me i've got about nine and a half thousand left by that count that means two-thirds of my life is done if you're 65 and you live the average that means you got five thousand one hundred and fourteen days left some of you are going preacher if you go any further i'm going to be put on suicide watch it why do we even bother to say that? Because the Scripture says in Psalm ninety twelve, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We lose something if we never pause to consider the brevity of life. If we never pause to consider how few days we really are given and pause to consider, if I'm only given so many days, if I truly only have about 9,500 days left, and who knows, I mean, I have a quarter of that left. We don't know. 
But we do know that at best, it's a very limited number of days. If I only have so many days left, I can't waste them. I need to spend them on the things that matter the most. Now, as a pastor, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. And you know what I've never heard said at a funeral, either in the service or by the people, talking about the deceased before or after the service? I have never heard anybody come up and say, such a wonderful person. They were great at their to-do list. They worked 80 hours a week their whole career, and they worked so dedicated in doing that. I love that they spent all those extra hours working. Best to-do list fulfiller I've ever seen. Never heard that. You know what I do here all the time? People saying, I love that they loved me, that they gave their time to me, that they gave their attention to me. I love how much they showed their love to me because it's all about relationships. It's about devoting time and energy to people. When I think back to the things that I've gotten wrong and right in life, it's almost silly some of the things that mean the most to me, that have been the most right. I think back to when my girls were little. My, my kids are completely grown, and I still remember so well the early days of moving to the eastern shore. Both of my daughters were young, and one of the silly things that we used to do that was just us being us was we would, on Saturday mornings, just at random times, we just load up, just the three of us, just Dad and the girls, and we would do what we always call Dr. Peppers and Donuts. We'd go to the closest gas station, and we would load up on Dr. Peppers and all the donuts we could get our hands on. And we'd, we'd always wind up eventually down at the bay, sitting on one of the public piers with our feet hanging off the pier, drinking Dr. Peppers and eating donuts. And I know in this day and time, half of you have judged me for being a bad parent. I'll get over it. They'll, they'll get over it. But those times of just knowing that they had my undivided attention and that we could do whatever they wanted to do, and yes, we just got high off of junk food and sugar, but it was the time of undivided attention that makes all the difference. It's, it's the practice of presence over productivity, not worrying about getting anything done in that moment other than enjoying the people that I love. Chuck Colson, most of you will recognize that name. If you, if you, some of you, as younger folks, may not know. He was uh, one of the Watergate Seven. He was one of Richard Nixon's inner circle. He was part of his special counsel in the early 70s. He was the first one convicted in Watergate, the first one to do time in 1974. But in 1973, he came to faith in Christ. It radically changed his life. It altered the course of the final 39 years of his life in such a major way. If you ever encountered Colson. He was just such a powerful figure. God had his hand on him so profoundly. But the, the change from how he had lived the first half of his life to how he lived the second half of his life was so dramatic. Colson said this, having lived on both sides of that. He says, as I think back to my life, my biggest regret is not spending more time with my kids. Making family your top priority means going against a culture where materialism and workaholism are rampant. It means realizing that you may not advance as fast in your careers as some do. It means being willing to accept a lower standard of living, 
knowing you're doing the right thing for your children, giving them emotional security that they'll draw on for the rest of their lives. Colson got it right. You know, we live in a time where the standard is that we've got to give our kids the best. We've got to give them the best education. I'm watching parents who are putting themselves in debt for decades to send their kids to any college and any private school that they want to go to. They're giving them the best technology, the best toys, the shiniest brand new cars that they usually didn't have to work a day for, believing that we're giving them the best life by giving them the best stuff. And yet what we're doing is ensuring that we have no margin, we have no time to spend with them because we've got to pay for all that we've given to them. Somewhere in this, we've got to turn the, the equation back upside right and say time is the way that you spell love. T-I-M-E is how you love people well. We need to look around us and figure out who are the people that God has called us to love well in this season. Some of us aren't raising kids anymore. Some of us aren't in marriages anymore. But for every one of us, God has put people around us that we need to invest time and energy in. I close with this passage from Paul in Philippians 1.9. He says, this is my prayer for you, that your love will grow more and more that you will have knowledge and understanding with your love. May that be true of us. That we would, starting today, learn to grow more and more in love for the people that God has put around us. Would you join me as we turn to God in prayer? We said as a beginning point, it is impossible for us to love well if we haven't received the love of God in our lives. I just want to invite you today, whether you're a Christian or somebody who has just been considering Christianity, would you open yourself up to the love of God? Would you just in simple faith just say, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for pursuing me. I want to know you. I want to experience your love. So I'm opening my heart and my life to you. I'm asking you to come in and be the center of my life. I want to learn to love you, but I need to feel loved by you. So would you now begin by taking away the weight of my sin? Would you give me a clean slate and a fresh start? Would you help me to begin to love others well? Father, I thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. I pray for hearts that have been damaged because of people who haven't loved us well. I pray that today you would just pour out your love on us today, that we would feel your nearness and your presence. For some who are feeling right now a great sense of grief and loss, I pray that your love would wash over us today. Lord, for some of us who need so desperately to be loved, I pray that you would help us to get off the sidelines and choose to engage others and to give away love. Thank you for how you refill us when we begin to love others well. I pray for every single one of us, oh God, that you would clearly bring to mind in this moment a picture of who it is that we need to pursue and begin to love well. Why don't you just right now pray a simple practical prayer that says, God, show me the person 
whether it's a family member, a friend, whoever, show me the person that right now you want me to begin to really pour energy into loving them. Would you just be still and camp on that for a moment? Father, we realize that we'll do a poor job of loving in our own strength, but you love other people so well through us. So we open our hearts and lives and we say, have your way in us. Love others through us. Help us to be faithful every day, to spend time with you, to be filled up by you. Thank you that you're always faithful to, to do that. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit with us and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us. Help us to walk worthy of the calling that we've received this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I surely hope that what you heard was relevant and helpful. And above everything, I hope that what you experienced today really helped your heart to connect with the heart of God. Now, if what you heard uh, for you stirred up any questions or maybe led you toward uh, some type of spiritual decision, maybe you want to talk with someone about something that's on your mind, I would love to hear from you. And so I would encourage you, Reach out by email at the bottom of the screen. You see my email address. It's mark at myfreedomchurch.net. That's not going to go to a secretary or an assistant. That will come directly to me. I'd love to hear from you and talk with you about anything that's on your mind. And if in the future you're in our area, we would love for you to come and worship with us at Freedom Church. But until then, we invite you to access all of the sermon material that you find online. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hope that you have a great day.